I invite you to turn with me in Holy Scripture to the prophecy according to Isaiah, chapter 42, where we'll read the first four verses, and then we're going to turn to the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, where we'll read the verses 1 through 12 together. First, we turn to Isaiah 42, where we begin reading in verse 1, page 765 of your pew Bible. Here the word of the Lord speaks to us as follows, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. We turn ahead in God's word to Matthew chapter 3. Where in preparation to read our text and have it explained to us this morning, we'll read the first 12 verses of Matthew 3. Afterwards, we'll sing from Psalm 2, which speaks of the eternal kingdom of God established through His Son, and that kingdom, that work of His Son, we'll hear in detail this morning, the way He started out His ministry. Matthew 3, and afterwards, we'll sing Psalm 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This morning I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we read it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13. Where our text reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 40, stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine you are sitting in the auditorium of Hamilton Place, or as it's now called, I gather, First Ontario Concert Hall. The place is packed to the gills with music lovers eagerly waiting to hear the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra. You know that you're in for a rapturous experience. The music is going to be majestic. The concert manager comes on stage and gives the crowd the cue to welcome with a standing ovation the man who's going to make it all happen. As you stand there in anticipation, that man comes to the stage, but he's not carrying a conductor's baton. No, he has a small flute. He starts to play softly, gently. It's not at all what you expected. The tune is very different than what you had anticipated, but he keeps going, and as you listen, you start to hear familiar music played in a new way. There's something delicate, almost unnerving, about it all. What does this have to do with Matthew 3? Everything. John comes on the stage, in this case the desert, and he gives us the cue to get on our feet. The one is coming. He is more powerful than I am. He's going to give you not just water, but the Holy Spirit and fire. 
He's going to clean up the barn so that the bad wheat is burned and the good wheat is preserved and transformed. We expect a great leader breaking onto the scene with thunder and lightning and a fair bit of bravado, changing everything in a hurry. But we don't get fanfare or theatrics. No, we have someone asking for baptism, like so many others. We get humble, lowly Jesus. And with John, we don't know what to think. Are you ever surprised by your Savior? I hope so. Jesus Christ lives to follow God's will and not ours. And so for all who share in the life of Christ, that means that you are in for more than just a few surprises. His repertoire is often not what we expect. But if we learn again and again to listen to him carefully and to watch him closely, we discover more and more that he far exceeds our expectations. Christ was sent by God and anointed by God to take our place, live our life, die our death. Our text is a call to faith, beloved, to see Christ for who he really is, so that we would rejoice together in his life, which has now become ours. I'm going to proclaim to you this word of the Lord. Jesus Christ passes through the waters to fulfill all righteousness for us. We'll see two things, the gospel in his baptism. Secondly, the gifts from his baptism. So first, we consider that from Christ, or in Christ's baptism, there is much gospel. Well, the last we heard of the Lord Jesus he was a child in Galilee. Now he's grown up, some 30 years later, and we find him on his way to the Jordan. Now from Galilee, it's a distance of some 70 miles as the crow flies, 85 if you're on the roads. This is no leisurely jaunt out to the desert. Jesus is traveling with resolute determination. He's heard of the ministry of John the Baptist, and so he sets out intentionally to be baptized by John. Well then, why is it so vital that Jesus be baptized in a river along with other Jews and by the somewhat eccentric and reclusive John the Baptist? We need to reflect together on John's baptism. John himself says in chapter 3, verse 11, that he baptized for repentance. It was a baptism intended to produce repentance. And so verses 5 and 6 say that Jews from Judea, Jerusalem and all Judea and the region around the Jordan were going out to John and were baptized by him at the river Jordan, confessing their sins. God's people needed to repent and be cleansed. This is what John's bap baptism 
symbolized. For it's the concern of John to announce the coming of the king to establish his kingdom. The people need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Membership in his kingdom is only for those who are clean. So yes, the character of John's baptism was very much like the character of his ministry. Preparatory, introductory. So was his baptism. It was meant to turn Jews to God again and assure them of forgiveness and cleansing and therefore a place in the kingdom. And so the people flock to John, including the leaders of Israel and including the Lord Jesus. The very first act of Jesus as an adult is to go out to the desert to receive John's baptism of repentance. But John's going to have none of it. He is dismayed. He's distressed. Verse 14, John, it says, would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And we can understand this objection, can't we? John knows who Jesus is. Surely, over the course of three decades, John would have heard a story or two from his parents about Jesus, his relative. Surely his parents would have told him of Mary's visit to Elizabeth when both were expecting, and John leaped in his mother's womb, and his mother blessed Mary. Surely John would have known that Jesus had this conception and birth that were marvelous. And surely John would have known that Jesus had this knowledge of Scripture that even as a child was exceptional. John knew who Jesus was, that he was the coming one who will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. For in John's ministry, he, was already, he has already claimed that he is unworthy to carry the sandals of the coming one. John said that the baptism of the coming one is going to be superior in nature to John's baptism. Yes, John had predicted the Christ to be a baptizer, not a baptizee, not a recipient of baptism. So when John now sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized by him, he is sorely reluctant. You don't need this baptism of repentance and confession of sin. You're not a sinner. Rather, I need to be baptized by you. I'm the one who needs to change, to repent, to be cleaned up, to turn from sin, not you. John is humble, aware of his own sin. we would echo John's concern. If John's baptism means confession of sins and repentance, then just what is Jesus doing here? Shouldn't he rather be visiting John to join him in John's efforts to turn God's people back to faith? Well, Jesus gives the answer. Let it be so now. 
For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John, we read, he consented. To what exactly was John giving his consent? This statement of the Lord Jesus is a loaded one. So our question remains, why is it so vital that Jesus be baptized in a river along with other Jews and by John the Baptist? How is Jesus receiving this baptism of repentance? How is that an act that's going to fulfill all righteousness? But when Matthew uses the term righteousness, he doesn't have in mind the way that the Apostle Paul uses the term. Paul, later on, after the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he ties righteousness directly to faith, faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's not in Matthew's mind. Instead, the term righteousness in Matthew always means conformity to the will of God. It means rendering full obedience to God. And so Jesus announces that it is God's will that John baptize him. Jesus' baptism is a public declaration of Jesus' deliberate decision to live a life of righteousness in every way. Christ seeks to do the entire will of God. Well and good, we would say. But since when, according to the Old Testament, did an Israelite have to be baptized? There is no such law. So how does Jesus' baptism fulfill or begin to fulfill all righteousness? It has everything to do with Jesus serving as the representative head of sinful Israel. Jesus is the new Israel we heard last week. And so Jesus receives a baptism of repentance because of his solidarity with, his union with Israel. Israel was led by Moses and had to go through the Red Sea at the Exodus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel there was baptized in the sea. And from there they went to the promised land. The second generation of Israel had to do the very same thing. And where? At the Jordan, under Joshua. That was a second exodus. And so Jesus, the new Israel, goes on his exodus mission. It started when he was an infant, going into and out of Egypt. And now as an adult, it resumes, it continues. We're at the Jordan again. And that's where he passes through the waters. Because Israel has to identify with water once again. They've come back from exile, from Babylon, but they've not gone through the waters. They've not been cleansed yet. They were still basically in exile, lost in sin. They have to undergo a second exodus through water. 
which is a recurring prophecy, for example, in Isaiah. Well, here comes Jesus, and he's baptized. He represents Israel. He's going to work righteousness for them. He's going to obey God's law on their behalf to bring true restoration to the people of God. Jesus, as the new Israel, fulfills the pattern established in the Old Testament that Israel has to pass through the waters to be cleansed. And so Jesus' baptism was part and parcel of his work to fulfill all righteousness. He came to represent Israel. His obedience to God's law formally begins with his baptism. There he proclaims his determination to do his assigned work, to restore and refashion the people of God. There is no better way to express his realization of his God-given duty than to undergo the baptism of repentance. That identifies him with humanity's sin. He's our representative, and for our sins, he's going to, he, he will atone. He's baptized, not because, not because he shares our need but in order to share our need. So he rightly says, thus it is fitting for us. It's proper. And John may not get in the way. He may not prevent Jesus, but rather help Jesus make it happen. Fitting for us, he says. Jesus includes John in his first public act. We have to go through with this, John, for the sake of my people. It's fitting for us together to fulfill all righteousness. I need your cooperation. Jesus doesn't want to do his work alone. He wants to do his work with others. And he's going to enlist the help of 12 others in particular before long. Beloved, in this one scene, you and I get to see what the adult Jesus will be like throughout the rest of, his, throughout the rest of the gospel. And what is that? A humble servant. See his great humility. The very first thing he does for his people is go down on their behalf into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. This is what his whole life is going to be like, numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53 says. Yes, the very same Christ who will one day end his ministry on a cross between thieves begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From baptism to crucifixion, the Lord Jesus stays low, identifying with us at every point, becoming one of us. And so you know what this means, brothers, sisters, boys and girls. Jesus loves me, this I know, 
for his baptism tells me so. Baptized ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. This is the gospel proclaimed at Christ's baptism. He's baptized for you. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness that God required of you. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. This is the heart of what the Lord Jesus came to do for you. He stood in for you. Not just at the end of his ministry, but already at the beginning. Baptism points to the gospel of God and Jesus Christ. In his goodness, Christ came as our substitute. And so it's good to be surprised sometimes, is it not? Jesus needed to be baptized in a river along with other Jews and by the eccentric and reclusive John the Baptist. Righteousness, obedience to the law of God, sometimes looks strange, surprising. But Christ resolved to fulfill all righteousness for us, and so he passed through the waters of baptism, and he comes out the other side. That's our second point, where we see the gifts coming from his baptism. Well, obviously, there was absolutely no way that heaven could keep silent at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. In the final verses of our text, we see a divine response to the action at the Jordan. It's a response both visible and audible. And Matthew draws special attention to both with the word, behold, twice. Started with the visible response. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. No sooner is Jesus baptized than he leaves the water, immediately. And at that moment, behold, heaven was open, and the Spirit comes right down on him. The Lord God wants to make absolutely clear that he has been watching, waiting for the moment of Christ's baptism. For that's the time when he was planning to give his spirit to Christ. Well, this visible response is something breathtaking. First, heaven opens. Interestingly, Mark records that the heavens were torn open. When the Son of God presents himself for his public ministry, heaven cannot remain uninvolved. Father and Spirit make themselves known. First, it's the Spirit. Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, that, of course, begs a question or two. For one, why would the Lord Jesus, true God, need to receive the Holy Spirit? Did he not already have the Spirit as his companion? We always have to exercise care in answering this. This is where the two natures of Christ features in. 
He was fully God, and of course also fully man. He came into the weakness of human flesh in the form of a servant for our sake. So like God's Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, servants of God and his people, Jesus, too, needed the Spirit to do his work of humble service. The Spirit descended upon Jesus according to his human nature to accomplish his work. Christ's obedience in our place had to be real obedience from a man. As somebody wrote, Jesus did not cheat by relying on his own divine nature while he acted as the new Israel. His baptism points to the anointing work, anointing with the Spirit needed to fulfill all righteousness for us. And so the Spirit, we also read, descends like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus. Like a dove, it says. There was not really a dove, but only the form of a dove. And that, of course, raises another question. Why does the Holy Spirit reveal himself in this form? Well, as it always happens, the Old Testament can be our guide here. There is this connection in God's word between the Holy Spirit, the dove or bird, and water. Together they present the picture of a new creation. It starts at the very beginning. Genesis 1 verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, this hovering conjures up the image in our minds of a bird. The Spirit is hovering over the waters of that old, formless, dark world. Those waters on that first day were keeping that old world from being habitable. So Genesis 1 verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And then on the sixth day, the Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground and the Spirit of God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and the man becomes a living being. Where the Spirit is, there is action, completion. Spirit gets things done. The waters were divided from dry land so that the new humanity, the new creation, could dwell on it. Now the very same pattern happens years later with Noah. Near the end of the flood, Genesis 8 verse 1 through 3 reveals God made a wind, spirit, same word, blow over the earth and the waters subsided and the waters receded from the earth continually. And Noah sends out a dove to hover above the waters. That dove went out looking for dry land for God's children and it finds dry land for the new humanity, the new creation, for Noah and his family to dwell upon. 
still more. Think of Israel at the Red Sea. That's why some of the songs we've been singing allude to the Red Sea. Exodus 15, verse 8. At the blast, wind. Sometimes rendered as spirit. It's the same word, Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea till your people, O Lord, pass by. You see, the exodus itself was an act of, the new, of new creation. Waters are divided. Humanity passes through on dry land. Every time, brothers and sisters, whether it's the first creation, the new creation after the flood, or the passage through the Red Sea, the Spirit is always there, bringing a new creation, fresh start. And so it happens again at the baptismal waters of the Jordan River with Christ. History is being repeated. Except now, in the Messiah, it's the start of not just a new creation, but the final creation. When Jesus comes out of the waters, the new Israel, final Israel, is born. One more thought about this dove. By using the dove, instead of, say, the hawk or the eagle, God's teaching us something. At the flood, that dove functioned as a symbol of hope, peace. A dove may be fragile, but it bears the symbol of hope and peace. Well, so the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes to rest on Jesus, not with a loud crash, but gently. Why? Because Christ's ministry is going to be different from John's ministry. John was like a hawk. He announced judgment. In the ministry of Jesus Christ, there is an emphasis on peace, hope, life. That's how he would fulfill all righteousness. He comes on the scene to make peace through bloodshed. He came to grant hope to us who had a hopeless future. His ministry was marked by tender, humble love. On account of the dove-like spirit filling him, influencing him. Take this to heart, brothers and sisters. This sign of the spirit descending like a dove is recorded for our sake so that we would know who our Savior is and what he was called to do and how he did it. He knew, without question, what his, who he was and what his task was. But we may know how he was called and anointed to perform his task as the shepherd of his sheep so that we would never doubt him, be mistrustful of him, he still, in many ways, ministers the same to us today. He shows God's love to us. He calls us to peace and to live in hope in Him. He gives us new life 
so that we would show peace and hope to those around us. He has come to reverse the effects of the fall. And he does so through his spirit. See what a gift comes from Christ's baptism, both for him and for us today, to whom the spirit has been given. Well, that's, of course, not all that happens at Christ's baptism. There is this audible response from above. Verse 17, and behold, there it is again. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father's voice is not only for Jesus, but also John and many others to hear. Only twice in the Gospels does God speak directly to the world from heaven. It's here at Jesus' baptism, and it happens again at Jesus' transfiguration. Both times, he says the same thing. Christ is not only the long-awaited servant of the Lord, upon whom the Spirit was promised and given as coming in a special way, He's also the long-expected Son of God. This is my beloved Son, is an echo of Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my Son. God is saying to all who are there, Jesus is the best thing promised in the Old Testament. This is it, people. This is the one. It's a wonderful endorsement from heaven of Jesus as Lord. You can hear Heavenly Father filled with pride and joy. This is my very own son. My beloved son, he says. There's a further allusion to the Old Testament, to what we read, for example, in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The love between the Father and the Son is something special. It's eternal and it's perfect. God takes great pleasure in his Son. Jesus is the absolutely unique Son of God and thus precious to his Father. And he considered it of utmost importance to make his love known at his son's baptism. For there is nothing more important for any son or daughter to know of a father's love. And so God says, I find nothing wrong in him. I am pleased with my son. I love my son. He does what I require. And not because he has to, but because he wants to out of love and devotion. Brothers and sisters, what do you hear in the Father's declaration at Christ's baptism? Well, the one fact that the Father wants you to know, apparently over and above any other fact, is how much you have in Jesus Christ. He declares his love for Christ for our sake. Listen, my people, in this one man is everything I want to say, reveal, and accomplish, and everything I want my people to hear, to see, and believe. This is my gift to you. 
If you want to know anything about me, if you want to hear anything from me, if you want to please me, look at my son and believe in him. It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that you are identified with him, the new Israel. And that's how you come into fellowship with the Father. That's how you cash in on all the benefits of being his son or daughter. He, Jesus, is the king who sums up Israel in himself. He's the restorer of Israel, of us. Beloved, hear it well, that the most surprising gift of God to human beings, to us, is that we can have and enjoy the favor of God that Jesus Christ himself enjoys as God's unique son. We, by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Brothers and sisters, look at how rich we are because Christ came to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew surrounds Jesus' baptism with so many associations to redemptive history, to the past. Jesus is the spirit bearer, the anointed one, the servant of the Lord, the son of God. This is all saying that to Jesus Christ, God has given all the divine promises, and in Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling all the divine promises. All the promises of God find their yes in him, Paul said. And to bring this home for the church, for us, the whole Trinity is either visible or audible at the baptism. The Father in the voice, the Spirit in the form of the dove, and the Son in the water. The triune God, you might say, has a thing for baptism. The next time the triune God explicitly appears in Matthew is at the end, at the great commission to the disciples to teach and baptize all nations. Jesus Christ said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to be baptized, to be identified with his people, with John, with you. John understood that and baptized him. Do you understand what Jesus had to do for you? Well, may it then no longer surprise you. He had to pass through the waters of judgment for you to bring you into the new creation with him. Now, the good gifts seen and heard at his baptism, God's spirit and God's favor are yours by faith, promised to you at your baptism. Christ fulfilled all righteousness so that you too now can live a righteous life, so that you too can do the will of God. Christ volunteered his whole life for you. Do the same for Christ. Through his spirit, 
to give your Father pleasure. Amen.